Well, amen. Glory to God. If you'll take your Bibles out with me this morning, I'm going to be going to the book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. It says, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Verse 2 says, and the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement, and they worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, for he is good for his mercy endures forever. Say that with me, will you please? For he is good and his mercy endures forever. Let's say that again. For he is good and his mercy endures forever. Amen. Verse four says, for the king, then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. And then the next several verses is talking about all the different sacrifices and how many of this and that they brought. And then in verse 11, it said, the Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's house, and Solomon successfully accomplished all that came into his heart to make in the house of the Lord and in, the, in his own house. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer. Come on, I have heard your prayer. Church, we need to understand that God has an ear tuned to you and your voice, and he hears your prayer. You say, which prayer does he hear? He hears every prayer. Now, sometimes he says yes. Sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says you're just going to have to wait. But he hears your prayer and he answers your prayer. It may not be the answer always you're looking for. All right? But he hears your prayer. And he said to Solomon, I have heard your prayer. And I have chosen this place for myself as the house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven, not if I shut up heaven, when I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. In other words, when something has happened that has caused the judgment of God to come upon the land. All right, that's the only time this happens. Something has happened. People have done something that has caused the judgment of God to come upon the land. He said, when that happens, verse 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, if they will pray, if they will seek my face, and if they will turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will hear their land. And we see in that statement, it was their sin that caused this. All right? So I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Now, my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers made in this place. And now I have chosen and sanctified this house and my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, now let me just stop right there and say, that was the physical temple and he says, my eyes, my ears, my, is gonna be attended to that perpetually. We are now the temple of God. Do you understand? When you pray, his ear is tuned to you. He hears your pr prayer is powerful. Yes. And he hears your prayer because perpetually he said, I'm going to have my ears tuned to the prayers that comes from my temple. We are now the temple of God. Yeah. Are you seeing this? Say amen. amen. Verse 17, for, as for you, 
if you walk before me as your father David, he's talking to Solomon, walk and do according to all that I've commanded you. And if you keep my statutes and my judgment, if you keep my statutes and my judgment, are you hearing me? If you keep my statutes and my judgment, not what you feel, not what you experience, not what you can prove because of this or that. Listen, the, the signs and wonders are great, but signs and wonders is not proof positive that God is in your court. The word of God and adhering the word of God, keeping his statutes and his judgments is what God has commanded us to do. And that's the only thing that should direct us and guide us. Verse 18, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom as I coveted with David your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man to, as ruler in Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from my land, which I have given them. And this house, which I have sanctified for my name's sake, I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all people. Now I could go to an, a whole Arminian position on what that's talking about in a spiritual context, dealing with us personally, but I'm not going to address that today but it's there's actually parallels between what he's saying there and our own personal walk if we turn from god and choose to serve ourselves or some other gods make gods to ourselves, he deals with us the same way he's going to deal with this physical temple are you seeing this verse 21 and as for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and this house? Then they will answer because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who brought them up out of the land of Egypt and embraced other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this calamity on them. So God is talking about how he's going to deal with the children of Israel, those who are called by his name. And so there's a message in there for us because God, he, he expects us to walk humbly before him. He doesn't expect the world to humble themselves and to call upon his name and to pray and to turn from their wickedness and to seek their face. That's what he expects of those who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. So even though he's dealing specifically with Israel here, there is a principle that is said here, and this is how he deals with all of those who are called by his name. Amen? If my people, how many in here are called by the name of Jesus? Amen? He's talking to us, even though this is an Old Testament passage. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. Amen? Isn't that what God told Paul? He wrote it in 2 Timothy 2.15. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and it's all profitable. He was referring to at that time the Old Testament because Paul, the New Testament hadn't even been written. Paul is one of the people who's gonna be writing the New Testament. So he's referring to the Old Testament. It's profitable for us. So throughout history, God's people has... Uh, as recorded in scripture, we see them following God faithfully. And when we do, he blesses them. We see them stray and fall away. And when he does, judgment comes upon the land and upon the people. Then if they repent, he restores them and he heals their land. And this happens over and over and over throughout the, the history of God's people throughout the Old Testament. And the same thing is true in church history. 
And, and I, I've said this before, we see revivals and, and they'll peak and then they subside. And then it seems like we go through a dry time, sometimes a very backslidden, sometimes a very wicked period of time, and it even finds its way into the church. And then something happens and a, another revival will break out. You'll see revival come to the church and it'll peak again. And we see this throughout church history as well. And so the whole theme of the treatise of what is being written here, we find in verse three, God is good, church. He is good and his mercy endures forever. Yes. How many of you know we didn't deserve the goodness of God in our life? Man, I turned my back on God as a young man and, and I didn't deserve a second chance, but he gave me one and I was sharing with Sister Taylor this morning in walking in ministry now, Jeannie and I, we've been in ministry for going on 49 years. There was one time that I turned my back on God. I just walked away, I was done. And, and it was the most miserable place I'd ever been in my life. Being out of the will of God, church, is not a place you want to be. But that experience, I told her, I said, because I'm trying to encourage Taylor. I know it's hard what she's doing. I said, that experience, I needed to go through that. Because when we planted the ministry here, there was things that I was going to face here that I would not have been able to stand up to had it not been for knowing what being out of the will of God is like. I never want to do that again. So you endure the battles and you stay the course. So sometimes God, he, he works through those things and he uses them for his glory and his good. But God knows the nature of man. And so he declares that when man becomes prideful, if he will humble himself, when he stops praying, if he'll start praying again, when he stops seeking God's face, if you'll start seeking his face again, when you turn to wickedness, if you'll turn from that wickedness and come back to God, then he will hear you and he will heal your land. God will bless you again. So it doesn't matter what stage you're in right now, God's good and his mercy endures forever. Yes. Church, if we need to hold on to that and encourage other people that might be in a dark, dark place, God is good. His mercy endures forever. And if you'll just humble yourself and pray, seek God's face again, turn from your wickedness, he will hear you again and he will heal you and he will come in and, and, and have a relationship and a fellowship with you. Amen. Father, we just ask you in Jesus' name, Lord that you would just anoint the word of God today. Lord, I pray that you ignite a fire in us. Oh, Lord, that God, like I, I said to Sister Taylor, Lord, I just thank you, God, for what she's doing there in Boston. Lord, I pray that you do that around the world. God, we need the holy fire once again, God, poured out in the church, God, and poured out in the land. So anoint us today, God. Ignite something in us, oh, Lord. And God, show us the way, Lord. Help us to open our doors to all people of all walks, Lord, realizing, God, that you're good. And your mercy, Lord, it endures forever. Teach us today, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, today is the first Sunday of June, and I'm going to do a series leading up to the July 2nd Freedom Celebration on the heritage that has marked our country and has brought us to the place where we are spiritually. Because... Uh, in leading up to the July independence celebration from Great Britain, you may not know exactly how that came about and why we celebrate our freedom from the tyranny of, of Great Britain and England. But during that period of time, 
I don't know how well you know history. I, I hated history in school. I didn't care anything about it, but when I started studying the Word of God, God's interaction with man throughout history, all of a sudden history became very interesting to me. And, and I saw how that when Great Britain, they, when they came to America, they occupied our homes. We had to feed them. We had to wash their clothes. And, and they could come into your house. They, they, had no, they didn't have to have a search warrant. They had search and seizure. They could just come in and take whatever they wanted to. You know, and, and they, they uh, taxed us without any kind of representation. They started the Stamp Act, which they could tax all paper. The, every piece of paper was taxed for the colonials, but they didn't tax the, the British citizens, the England, citizens of England, just the colonials, because they had fought a war with France and they needed to finance that war, so they made us pay for their war. And so we, that led up to the Boston Tea Party, was the Stamp Act, actually, that, that led up to that. We were resisting the taxation without representation. Now, our Constitution that was formed by our founding fathers, it is one of the most fascinating documents in human history. It has outlasted every form of government that's ever existed on the earth, yeah. church. It's the longest standing form of government in human history. France, they had a revolution 10 years after ours, and they have changed their constitution 15 times. Afghanistan has changed theirs five times since 1923. Russia changed their constitution four times since 1918. Brazil has changed their seven times since 1822. Poland has changed their six times since 1921. And on and on I could go. Europe, Africa, South America, and the rest of the world have all changed their constitution. We've never changed our constitution since it was. How can a group of men sit down and write something that is going to last through the ages? It was by the guiding hand of Almighty God that that was done, church. And we need to understand that. We are exceptional in America. American exceptionalism. Why? Because the statements existed in our constitutions that's never existed in any other document. Words like inalienable rights. In other words, the government can touch many, many things, but they can't touch your life, your liberty, or your pursuit of happiness. Words like consent of the governed because under most governments, the king told you what to do and you either did it or you lost your head. But now those that are in authority, they do what they do by the consent of the governor or at least they are supposed to, amen. We have the three separate branches of governments and they have checks and balances in what Alexander Hamilton called the constitutional arm of self-defense so that one branch cannot dictate to the other branch how they rule. <clears throat> we have republicanism. See, we are a republic that operates by democracy. In other words, we vote people in to represent us. And if we don't like what they do, then we vote them out. And that's why it is so important for righteous people that wants righteousness in the land to be involved politically. Yes. We need to be engaged and involved politically because the rules and the laws that they make, they affect us all. So we want the right person there. Yes. We vote on national, state, and local levels each election. 
Now, where did all these radical ideas come from? James Otis, a mentor of John Hancock and James Adams said, quote, the authority of Mr. Locke has been preferred to all others, end quote. John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Benjamin Rush, and others all sang the praises of a man named John Locke. Few people's ever, never even heard of him. Who is John Locke? John Quincy Adams said, quote, the Declaration of Independence was founded upon one and the same theory of government expounded in the writings of Locke. Critics call John Locke a deist. A deist is a person that, that accepts the existence of God and he believes that God sets everything, the government and the structure in order, and then he has no dealings with the affairs of man. He just lets it run its course. That John Locke was not a deist. He was a theologian. He wrote a verse-by-verse verse commentary of every book that the apostle Paul wrote. Now, you think about that just a minute. The book of Romans, verse-by-verse commentary of the whole book of Romans. Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, the letters to Philemon, the letters to, to Timothy, the letters to Titus. Every single book that Paul wrote, he wrote a verse-by-verse -verse commentary. This is one of our men in government writing this about the Bible. He was a theologian. Liberal enlightened thinkers in the 1700s was attacking Christianity. So John Locke didn't like that. He didn't like, see, wokeism is not new. That's right. You're right. The 1700s enlightened people who had expanded the, the, their mind was attacking Christianity. So John Locke wrote a book in defense of Christianity entitled Reasonable Don't, Reasonableness of Christianity. So they attacked that. So he wrote a second book, Vindication of the Reasonableness of Christianity. Two years later, just because he could, he wrote the second edition of Vindication of the Reasonableness of Christianity. But the book that most inspired the founding fathers was a book he wrote called The Two Treatises of Government. Richard Henry Lee, the man that made the motion to separate from England, and he was a signer of the Constitution, said, quote, the Declaration of Independence was copied from Locke's treatises of government. John Locke. All they did was took his book and wrote, copied what this theologian who knew God, who studied his word, had written in his book. This little book that was copied to form the declaration was 400 pages long and it cited the Bible over 1,500 times in 400 pages. But John Locke was only one of these kinds with conviction. We have thousands of documents from our founding fathers. They didn't have YouTube huh? or social media. They didn't have tape recorders. They wrote everything down, and we have those written documents today. You can go back and read them for yourself, thousands of them. We have thousands of sermons because sermons were written and read line on line back in that period of time. 
And it was said of Jonathan Edwards who had poor eyesight that when he preached, he would leave ink on the end of his nose because they're writing with fountain pens, all right? The ink is still wet sometimes. And he had to hold the note so close to his face to read it that he would leave ink. He might have had a big snoz, I don't know, but <laughs> there's ink on the end of his nose, you know, because we have those sermons, thousands of them. And everything that was dealt with in the declaration is recorded and had been preached repeatedly in those sermons leading up to 1763. When our founding fathers came together, all they're doing is putting into writing in our government what clergymen had been saying in the pulpit for decades. One noted preacher, John Wise, from Scripture, he proved that taxation without representation is tyranny. He proved from Scripture that consent of the governed is the basis of biblical government. He proved from Scripture that all men are created equal and they have certain God-given rights. The repeal of the Stamp Act that led to the Boston Tea Party can be traced back to a sermon by Reverend Charles Cheney. The Stamp Act, he said, quote, is unbiblical. Even when Benjamin Franklin went to the Parliament to argue against the Stamp Act, he took, <clears throat> he took with him George Whitfield, a pastor, this is one of our government leaders taking a clergyman with him to go to England to address the Stamp Act and to protest against it. This whole church, separation of church and state was never the intention of our founding fathers. They understood that the king and the prophet always worked together. Many times the king would not go into battle to, he says, is there not a prophet in the land that we can inquire of God before we decide what we're going to do as a nation? And so they call the prophet in and say, what is God telling us to do? Yeah. And many times they wouldn't take a step until they heard from the prophet. Yeah. What is God telling us to do? You know, and it's encouraging to know that there are still some in government today. Yeah. There are some in government today yeah. that still have that same conviction. Yeah. They want to know the will of God. I thank God for that today. We, uh, you might not know this, but the, the Congress still has a chaplain that is paid to be there. I know one of those men, Barry Black. He, Barry Black, he came to one of the district councils that invited him to preach. And when he got in the pulpit, he's, he came from South Carolina. He, he's an African-American man. And he stood there, and I thought, this, this is going to be as dry as last week's toast because he talked very sophisticated and but brother, I'm going to tell you what, when that brother turned loose and started preaching, he preached a sermon called Casting Your Tent Towards Sodom. Come on, church. And he, he said, it, it was encouraging to hear him say, I meet with congressmen. We have Bible study together. We pray together. There's hope for America. Every part of our Declaration of Independence, our Constitution, and our Bill of Rights are and were the direct teachings of the Bible as declared by these great men of God leading up to the War of Independence. From the pilgrims to the formation of the independent nation to this present day, we have been a people that is proclaimed to be a nation that is under God. Yes. It's in our pledge. 
I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, to the republic for which you stand, one nation under God. It's on our money. Contrary to what one former president said when he went to, uh, he, he went to um, Indonesia in 2010 and he said that uh, e pluribus unum is our motto. Out of many, one. E pluribus unum means out of many comes one, which is on the backside of the dollar. And he said, that is our motto. Congress wrote a letter to him on December the 6th asking him to issue a correction. And he refused. Shortly after that, 2012, that movement that he's a part of voted three times to take God out of their platform. Can I just tell you something? God is not in their platform. He doesn't come where he's not welcome or he's not wanted. And some of them are seeing that and thank God their eyes are being opened and they're jumping ship yes. and coming over to the light. Yes, they Praise God. Yes, and those of you who are listening to this sermon, you need to get off of that ship and get on the right boat, brother, because I'm telling you what, that one's headed to the Bermuda Triangle. I like that old song says, I'm going to take a trip in the good old gospel ship. Amen. I'm going far beyond the skies. I'm going to shout and sing until the heavens ring while I'm bidding this world goodbye. Need to get right on, on board the right ship. Amen. Just to clarify, on our coin it says, in God we trust. That's our motto. Amen. In God we trust. Now, America is a people that is called by his name. It's in writing in our government. In 1892, the Church of the Holy Trinity versus the United States, there was a unanimous vote of the Supreme Court. Quote, no purpose of action against religion can be imputed to any legislation, state or national because this is a religious people and this is a Christian nation. Amen. It's a Amen. Christian nation. Amen. America is a Christian nation. Amen. The records in that case were 16 pages long and provided 87 precedents that America is a Christian nation. It quoted the founding fathers. It quoted acts of Congress. It quoted acts of state government. Now, even though America doesn't look much like a Christian nation today, we need to take heart, church, because it has looked bad before. It looked bad when they were forming the Constitution. It looked really bad. Leading up to the Revolutionary War, we had the first great awakening that lasted for over 30 years. It ushered men in like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Harry Hoosier. Who's ever heard of Harry Hoosier? Indiana got the name of its state from this man, the Hoosier State. Harry Hoosier was an African-American preacher that the founding father said he was the greatest orator to ever preach in a pulpit, wow. and he was illiterate. Wow. Came from Fayetteville, North Carolina. Come on. Went to Indiana and turned that state upside down. 
produced by the Great Awakening. We hear about George Whitfield and, and uh, Jonathan Edwards and them, but Harry Hoosier was the greatest of them all. Seventeen seventy-six, the revival stopped during the Revolutionary War. I read this last week. I borrowed it from the day's message. Fifteen to twenty-year period that after the war, the churches was divided because of the war. The Anglicans and the Methodists sided with England. The Baptist, Congregationalists, Lutheran, and Presbyterians sided with the Colonials, and the Quakers and the Mennonites were they were neutral, so they weren't liked by anybody because they wouldn't get in one side or the other. And so the, there was a fragmentation in the kingdom of God. Come on, a house divided in itself, what does the Bible tell us? It can't stand. We need to stop making such a big deal about the name over our door, church. We're an assembly of God church. But I have always, and still to this day, I have a kingdom mentality. I could just as easily be Calvary Chapel. Amen? Because that's really where Gene and I came from was the Jesus Revolution. We watched that movie. How many have seen the Jesus Revolution? Brother, that was total deja vu for her and I. In fact, I even rode to see her on a bicycle just like the one he was riding on. I rode from Ashland, Virginia, all the way. You, you, you go in Ashland and ride all the way down Route 1 to 7-Eleven and Colonial Trailer Park's right behind it. That's where she lived in July in the hot sun with hair down to here with my bell-bottom hip huggers on. I was looking too cool for school, brother. I had my beads on. I was a freak now. I'm, I borrowed a little girl's 20-inch bicycle to go see her. And when I got there, I was like, this is not going to work. So I went into 7-Eleven, bought a bottle of Brute 33. She was babysitting as I was going down to her house, and she said, hey, you big goober. And so that, that revolution that wound up in the, in the coffee houses, the church where she met Jesus had a coffee house which came out of that movement that started in California. Amen? Never be the same again. So take hope, church. There, there is hope, man. There was a division, though, in the church. And 15 to 20-year period after the war, those who experienced that great revival had forgot the Lord. And sin became the order of the day. Whiskey was used as trade. The farmers used their extra grain to make whiskey, and they used it as, as currency. And so since they were using it as currency, the, the government taxed it. And so they broke out in what was known as the, the Whiskey Rebellion in 1791 to 1794. Because they said, we just fought a war with England over this. You're taxing our whiskey? It's the taxation's the reason we went to war. Yeah. So in western Pennsylvania, the government sent 1,300 troops from Virginia, Maryland, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, led by George Washington, to march against 500 rebels. Four of them were killed and 170 were arrested and it shut it down. At that time, the U.S. population was only 5 million, but there was an estimated 300,000 alcoholics. You know, so ministers are in the pulpit preaching on staying away from alcohol. That was the prevalent problem of the day. 
I came up in the Southern Baptist. And if any of you come up in the Southern Baptist, you know in the back of the Baptist hymnal there is a responsive reading. Anybody know what I'm talking about? How many former Baptists, or maybe you're still a Baptist, I don't know. All right, and in the back, the pastor reads one part and you read another part. Well, they had the church covenant in there. And in the church covenant, it says, I will not buy, sell, or drink alcohol as a beverage. Why? Because during this period of time, that was the problem. And they preached a lot about it. Today, I am preaching and others are preaching about the whole transgender LGBT movement because that is the alcoholism of our day. Are you hearing me, church? It's the thing that is, it, it's, it's like a gangrene that's in our country. Like alcoholism, if you don't cut that gangrene out, you're gonna have to, the whole body will die. You have to do some surgery and deal with this. And it's not because you hate alcoholics. You love them. You want to help them. Your doors are open to them because Jesus Christ can set you free. The only thing that can help you is Jesus Christ. And we want to embrace you and love you. The reason the Jesus freak revolution opened up is because Chuck Smith opened the door and let the hippies come in. If you saw the movie and his church members is criticizing because they're getting stained on their shag carpet. So what does he do? The next Sunday when they showed up, he's got a pan of water and he's washing their feet as they come in the church. He did what Jesus did, amen? So if a gay person shows up here, you know what we're gonna do? God love you, come on in. You are welcome here. All right, the alcoholic shows up, you are welcome here. Drug addict, you're welcome here. Because this is the very place you need to be. I've had prostitutes in here, pole dancers, alcoholics, homosexuals. We love, the, we love them. I love you, but if you've got a problem, I'm not going to make your problem the deal. Jesus is the deal. He can heal you of your problem, whatever it is. And so they had a problem with alcoholism in that time. This influence brought about a terrible decline in moral behavior because you, you can shut down the rebellion, but you cannot legislate holiness. Right. You can't legislate righteousness, yes. moral conscience. What you may not know is the Jesus revolution that I am the product of and Jeannie is the product of started with a man named Lonnie Frisbee. He was a hippie. And he was on an acid trip in, 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 in the, uh, Ashbury, the, uh, in California. Yeah, you know the place, hate Ashbury. He's on an acid trip and he had a vision of Jesus. And so through that, he, he began to search and he said, what I realize is all of these people, and this is what he told Chuck Smith, they're all searching for God. They don't know that but they're trying this and they're trying that and they're trying sex, they're trying drugs, they're trying all this, looking for God. And so God called this young man with his hair down the ear and all of his hippie stuff on and he didn't change that. And there was an anointing on his life. He could prophesy. He, he was in one service and he began to prophesy over individual people and he told him in the last days God will pour out his spirit on all flesh, including hippies yeah. Yeah. and homosexuals Amen. and lesbians Amen. 
because he himself was a gay man. Now, when he came to Jesus, he repented of that, married a young lady, but later on, he, he returned to that lifestyle in the closet, all right? At the end of his life, Chuck Smith went and talked to him, not Chuck Smith, Greg Laurie, who came out of that movement, went and talked to him and said he repented of that because he, he taught that it was wrong. He knew that it was wrong. He preached that it was wrong, just like he returned to drug addiction and homosexuality. He struggled with it. And he repented of it. He died in 1993 of HIV-AIDS. You know, and, and when, when I hear that, it grieves me to think that he, he, he I don't know what happened to him, but what we need to understand is Jesus, he, he can heal those people if they will turn from, come on, their wicked ways. He will heal them. He just wouldn't turn from it. And when Chuck Smith tried to bring him under authority, he rebelled against the authority. I say, I don't know how he got there. Actually, I do. Chuck Smith was his authority and he wouldn't yield to Chuck Smith. He rebelled against him. He went out and started other ministries. He actually helped start the vineyard ministry with uh, John, John Wimmer, I think it is. And they tried to deal with him, but he just, he wouldn't submit because he had, listen, the Bible says, that's confusing. How could, how could a man be in that lifestyle and still prophesy? Right? How can a person be compromising and God still used him? Because I've asked that question. When Jimmy Swaggart, some of you know who he was, he was preaching in South America and thousands of people were coming to Christ under his ministry because there was an anointing on his preaching. Thousands of people were coming to Christ. I was supporting his ministry. We didn't have two nickels to rub together, but I believed in what he was doing and we made the money, extra money, and we helped support him because what he was doing. At that same time, he was visiting prostitutes. And I said, God, how is that possible? How does a man that is compromising like that carry such an anointing? And what the Lord showed me is the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. If God gives you a gift and he gives you a calling, he doesn't take that back. Whether you're serving him or not, the gifts and the callings of God are not taken back from you. They're not repentant. There's, there's, there's no repentance. There's no taking it away. All right, so the gift and the calling was still there, but it makes Matthew 7, 21 so much clearer when you hear Jesus say, not all that have said, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. For many will say to me in that day, I prophesied in your name. I cast out devils in your name. I did many mighty works in your name. And he will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. Doesn't mean that they weren't his child at one time. It means that we didn't have that intimate relationship anymore because you chose wickedness. Lonnie wasn't justified in what he was doing and he knew it, but he chose to rebel and he died with HIV AIDS. Thank God he repented in the end before he died and I believe he was ready to meet the Lord. I hope he was. I didn't mean to get off on all that. But. Matthew 
The country had been in great revival and it was now in spiritual darkness. Sound familiar? America is smiling into a dark place now. One denomination after another is embracing things that God is condemning. And so we are in spiritual darkness right now, even in the church. Christians after the Revolutionary War believed that if God doesn't do something, Christianity will be lost. There was a rise in immoral behavior. Illegitimacy rates was at an all-time high. Profanity was the rule of the day, and truthfulness had declined. Leading up to the revolution, there had been a 30-year revival. It had been the catalyst that united the colonies. It was even supported by Benjamin Franklin. He was the least religious of the whole bunch. He went to George Whitfield's sermon. One of his sermons, he was trying to raise money for an orphanage, and Benjamin Franklin was opposed to it. He didn't think, he didn't believe in the orphanage. And so he's standing there, and, ben, and, and George Whitfield got to preaching. He said he had a $5 gold piece in his pocket, several uh, uh, silver dollars, and a couple of copper pieces. And then finally, George Whitfield's preaching. He said, well, all right, I'll give a dollar. Kept on preaching. He said, all right, I'll go ahead and give $5. Kept on preaching. He said, oh, I'll just give it all. And beside him was a Scottish man, and he reached in, pulled his pockets out, and they were empty. He said, I've been to his services before. <laughs> <laughs> and said the Scottish man borrowed a dollar from, from uh, Benjamin Franklin to put in the offering. <laughs> but after the French Revolution of 1789 to 1799, less than 25 years after the Great Awakening, the colonies were in chaos. See, Christianity had united them. Now they're in total chaos. Why? Because God is bringing pestilence in a sense. If you read 2 Chronicles, when I do this and when I do that and when I do this. Why? Because you're in sin. They're in chaos because they're in sin. In Kentucky, they held court five times in one year. Only five times in the whole year. The colleges became the target to spread anti-Christian propaganda. Polls were taken in Princeton University and in 1782. They found one person who, who admitted being a Christian. In Harvard, they didn't find a single person in 1782 that would confess to be a Christian. These church, these were institutions that were formed to train clergymen for the ministry. Now they've got no Christians in them. Timothy Dwight, the president of Yale, stated, quote, the dredges of infidelity has been vomited upon this nation. Wealthy Frenchmen who had participated in the French Revolution or war, who had come to power, were contributing millions of francs to propagandize, to corrupt and seduce young Americans with a message of world enlightenment, liberalism, and godlessness. And during that time, the church went silent. Church, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to sit down. I'm not going to shut up. And there's a lot of people that has the same conviction. Greg Laurie is one of those. He is a very outspoken person on righteousness and holiness and living a, a life consecrated to God. Voltaire, a French writer, historian, and philosopher, and famed infidel stated, quote, intellects like mine will make the Bible disappear. He said, quote, nothing... Uh, uh, that he would make the Bible nothing more than a museum piece within a hundred years. 
He said, quote, the church will be extinct within 30 years. He further said, quote, the Bible would be known only in the relics of antiquity. Within 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Convention would buy the castle of Voltaire and use his printing press to print the Geneva Bible. Church, when all seems lost, there is still hope. You need to remember that. Less than 25 years after the Great Awakening, after we declared our independence, Satan tried to destroy this nation. Why? Because America would become the greatest evangelical influence in, Amer in world history. Yeah. It has been and it still is today. Yes. If you stop the source of light, then you stopped it from spreading. So you go to the source, you try to put out the fire. And Satan tried to do that. Liberal thinkers had captured Frank, France and Great Britain and was making its way to America. Thomas Paine, an antagonist toward Christianity and propagandist of humanistic, liberal, godless thinking, was having a huge impact in the colleges. Historian Scott, uh, Kenneth Scott uh, Latore said that the 15-year, 20-period from 1776 to 1790, it looked as though Christianity was about to be ushered out of the affairs of man. Christians were meeting in secret. Churches were being burned. Churches were losing more members than they were gaining, and thousands were leaving the church. In French, at the same period of time, a movement by the, uh, those that was in power, they, dedicated they were dedicated to de-Christianize France. And on November the 10th, 1793, 27 years after our independence, France took a prostitute to the Notre Dame Cathedral and crowned her the goddess of reason. In other words, we don't worship Jesus anymore. We're worshiping this prostitute, the goddess of reason. We're worshiping our intellect, our mind, our enlightenment. Now, it looked really bad, church. And if you were a Christian in the 1790s, you would think that, that there, there is no hope. Because things looked hopeless. And a lot of Christians today would say the same thing. But church, I need to remind you that God is good yes. and his mercy endures forever. Yes. We look at the terrible condition of the world and say, well, it's never been this bad before. Well, actually it has. Yes. It's been this bad before. When the church started, it was bad. Yes. Worse than now. Because the things we're seeing now was rampant during the time of the apostles. Remember I told you several weeks ago, John said that the, sway, that the whole world was under the sway of the wicked one. You have to understand the whole world is in darkness. There's one little trickle of light coming from 12 men in Jerusalem. And the whole world. And then 120. And then 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. And then it spread. That old song says it only takes a spark to get a fire going. Did I spoke over? That's all it takes, church. That's all it started with. That's what turned the world. Said the men that have turned the world upside down has come here. How many of you would like to be identified as the person that turned the world upside down for Jesus? Huh? Come on, on your workplace and in your home and your family. Turned the world upside down. And they've come here too. But it's been bad before. Say, it's never been this bad. Sure it has. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9 says, that which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of the things that are to come by those who will come after. So the church has been here before. What did they do to change their dark condition? In 1744, 32 years before the world, in Scotland, a Presbyterian pastor named John Erickson published a memorial pleading for the people of Scotland to pray for revival, and revival broke out in Scotland. Why? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and what? And pray. They just prayed. I shouldn't say just prayed. They prayed. Probably one of the greatest and most important things you could do is pray. They prayed and revival broke out in Scotland. He sent a copy of a little book to Jonathan Edwards that he wrote a similar plea to the pastors in the colonies. And this was part of the Great Awakening. After the war in 1784, when the people of America had become prideful and they had turned from God, they stopped praying, they stopped seeking his face. A Baptist preacher from Norwood, Connecticut, Isaac Bacchus, who had been influenced by Edwards and a man named Stephen Gano, along with 23 other New England ministers, distributed a circular letter which called for a concert of prayer They were asked to pray for a general awakening. It simply requested that all denominations would pray beginning at 2 o'clock on the first Tuesday of the first quarter beginning in January. Church, that's four times in one year. They're not asking a lot. I want every church of every denomination on the first Tuesday of the quarter to pray that God would send awakening to America. Four prayer meetings in a whole year. All they asked for. And when they did... Revival broke out. It was called the Second Great Awakening. It lasted from 1790 to 1830. Church, we meet right here every second Thursday for the one service, and we pray for our nation. We pray for our community. We pray for the persecuted church. It's a time of prayer. All we do is sing praises to God and pray. Before we planted the church here, we met with a prayer and share group. Some of you remember that. You're in this room. You remember those prayer and share meetings. For three years, we met every Friday night and prayed for God to send his Holy Spirit to all the churches in the Central Virginia area. And I believe that he has. You know, I think that we triggered a revival here. It may not look like a whole lot right now, but churches, we're still fanning the flame. Come on, church. We're still fanning the flame. We, 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 We received a lot of criticism. Oh, you're the church that sings from the wall. Now they all sing off the wall. Amen. <laughs> come on. We were called the rock and roll church. You let people come to church wearing shorts. You're supposed to wear a, ch- a coat and a tie to church. And so we, but revival, I believe, is broken out in part because we started that spark and we keep, and, and it wasn't, I'm not, listen, I don't want us to take the credit. It was prayer. It was people coming together saying, God, I don't care who, I don't care what the name is over the door. I don't care who the pastor is, what church it is. If it's a church over there and a revival breaks out, we're going to go over there and help them. 
It doesn't have to be this church. God, pour out your spirit in all the churches. For three years we prayed for that. We're still praying for revival to break out. Produced a man like Charles Grandison Finney. I mean, one of the greatest evangelists in American history. I won't even get started on him because it'll take me a while to talk about who he is. The greatest evangelist I believe that's ever lived. Amen. Brittany, why don't you guys go ahead and join me on front. Let me close with this. In September of 1857, a man, prayer, a man of prayer, Jeremiah Lamfer, started a businessmen's prayer meeting in the upper room of a Dutch Reformed church uh, in Manhattan, New York. Who would ever think of New York as being a place for a revival to start? Huh? In response to his advertisement, only six people out of the population of a million showed up. But the following week, there was 14 and then 23. And when he decided to meet every day for prayer, by late winter, they were filling the Dutch Reformed Church, then the Methodist Church on John Street, the Trinity Episcopal Church on Broadway, uh, at Wall Street. And in February and March of 1858, every church and public hall in downtown New York was filled with people praying. Horace Greeley, a famous editor, sent a reporter with a horse and buggy racing around the prayer meetings to see how many men were praying. In one hour, he could only get to 12 meetings, and he counted 6,100 men attending. Then a landslide of prayer began, which overflowed to the churches. In the evening, people began to be converted 10,000 a week in New York City alone. The movement spread throughout New England. The church bells bringing people to the prayer at 8 in the morning, 12 noon, and 6 in the evening. The revival raced up the Hudson and down the Mohawk, where the Baptists, for example, had so many people to be baptized that they went down to the Hudson River, cut a hole in the ice, and baptized them in the cold water. How many believers do we have in here that would be baptized in the Hudson River in a hole in the ice? I have spoiled you. We have a heated baptismal pool. <laughs> when the revival reached Chicago, a young shoe salesman went to the superintendent of the Plymouth Congregational Church. This reminds me of the Jesus freaks because young people, they just don't believe you just can't do something. They believe you can do anything. In the movie, the Jesus freaks, they give uh, uh, Greg Laurie, a car, an old Corvair. And he was so excited, and this thing, pow, boom, boom. And so it shut off. And so what did they do? They all got around it, laid hands on the car, and prayed for it. And I'm crying watching this because that's the kind of stuff we did. And God honors that. He honors childlike faith. I've seen him do things for brand new Christians that he doesn't do for other people because he wants them to know that faith works and it's real yes. and he's real. Yes. So this young man shows up and he's excited in the Plymouth Congregation Church and he asked if he could have a Sunday school class. The superintendent said, I'm sorry, young fellow. I have 16 teachers too many, but I will put you on the waiting list. 
Young man insisted, I want to do something just now. He said, well, start a class. He said, well, how do I start a class? He said, go get some boys off the street, but don't bring them here. Take them out into the country, and after a month, you will have control of them. Then you can bring them in. Because these are street kids. I mean, these are the guys that's pickpocketing you and stealing to get, make a living, all right? These are street boys. These are the kind of people that David used for his mighty men. Yeah. Amen? He took them to the beach of Lake Michigan, and he taught them Bible verses and Bible games. Then he took them to Plymouth Congregational Church, and the name of that young man was Dwight Lehman Moody. He was the beginning of his ministry that lasted for 40 years. He said that the world, the, God told him, said, Moody, the world is a sea where people are drowning in sin, and I have put you in a lifeboat. Save as many as you can, Moody. It was his philosophy that he would not go to bed at night until he'd won somebody to Jesus. Trinity Episcopal Church in Chicago had 121 members in 1857 and had 1,400 in 1860. And that was typical of churches. More than a million people were converted to God in one year out of the population of 30 million. The same revival jumped the Atlantic. It appeared in, in Scotland, in Wales, in England, Europe, South Africa, South India, anywhere there was an evangelical cause. And it sent missionaries, pioneers to many countries. The effects were felt for 40 years, having begun in a movement of prayer, and it was sustained in a movement of prayer. So church, I say that, that's our history. The history of the heritage of our nation. And when we see what's going on today and we think that it's really bad and what is God going to do? We've been here before. And I don't know if God's going to send revival to America or not. But what I can tell you is that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, if they will seek God's face, if they will turn from their wicked ways, then he will hear from heaven. He'll heal our land. How many believe he can heal our land? Amen. Would you stand with me, please? I don't know what your personal walk with Jesus is like. You know, and my message to people that are living in a lifestyle that is contrary to the will of God, whatever that looks like, God instructs us to turn from our wicked ways. All right. God accepts you right where you are. Doesn't matter. You can be a hippie. You can be a drug addict. You can be an alcoholic. You can be a homosexual. You can be a lesbian. He accepts you right where you are. But he doesn't leave you where you are. The Bible tells us, the Apostle Paul, he said, in, in Romans 12, he said, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and reasonable and acceptable will of God. 
The apostle Paul, he said, I buffet my body and keep it under subjection lest I preach to you and I myself become a castaway. Right? So God wants to change us. And he can and will change you. And trust me, people that are searching for happiness and joy and fulfillment and peace, they search for it everywhere. It's only found one place. It's found in Jesus Christ alone. A total, complete surrender to him. It's where you find it. And we need to live that life before people. Have you totally surrendered to Jesus? Completely sold out to him. Greg Laurie said the thing that really got him was when Lonnie Frisbee said, Jesus said, if you are not with me, if you're not for me, you're against me. I want to be for him. Amen. Come on. I want to be for him. Because I don't want to be against Jesus. The church, as goes the church, so goes the nation. We know that Jesus is the only hope for any people. And the church is the light. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. Let your light shine before men. The church has been driven into silence and shamed into silence before. Don't let it shame you into silence. We need to speak up. And if people say, well, you're being judgmental, you're being this or that, let's learn some wisdom and how to approach the subjects that need to be talked about, but talk about them. We don't need to be harsh or, or, or unloving or unkind. When men like John Wise, John Locke, Charles Cheney, Harry Hoosier, and all those guys proclaimed the gospel, the nation heard it and they received it. And America has prospered and it prospered then. It defeated the most powerful military force on the earth. Listen, when God's with us, we're, we're concerned about China right now. We're, how many is concerned about what's going on with China? That's scary. That's a nuclear power. What's going on with North Korea? What's going on with Russia and Ukraine? Well, we know that Jesus said in the last days that nations shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be wars and rumors of war. We're seeing all of that. All right, but when God is in your camp, all right, just think about this. The, the American revival brought in the presence of God in America. Britain, they didn't have the presence of God on their side. When George Washington was fighting against Cornwallis, he was outnumbered, outgunned. You got people with pitchforks fighting people with all the muskets and ball and powder and everything, and we've got hunting rifles and limited resources. They were outnumbered by Cornwallis. When he got to the Catawba River right there in Rock Hill, South Carolina, in that area there, I just read an article about the Catawba Indians there, who, by the way, fought with the colonials. The Cherokee, I'm ashamed to say, fought with the British. I'm part Cherokee, but anyway, that's another subject. When he got to the Catawba River, they, George Washington crossed the river and it mysteriously flooded so that Cornwallis couldn't cross it, giving them time to get distance between them. They was about to catch up with them again at the Yadkin River in North Carolina. George Washington and his army crossed the Yadkin River and it mysteriously flooded again. There's no rain. There's no reason for it to flood. Cornwallis couldn't cross it. When he got to the Dan River right here in Virginia, 
the same thing happened again. Then he's standing on the bank of the Potomac and a mysterious mist came in, so he escaped during the mist from Cornwallis. And the British said, it is becoming apparent that God is on their side. Yes. When God is on your side, China, I do whatever you're going to do. We're not scared of you. God is on our side. North Korea, Russia, whomever. If my people will humble themselves, if my people will pray. We don't have to wait for Washington, D.C. and the president and the Congress and the Senate and all of them to get their act together. The church needs to start this thing. We need to make sure that we're living our lives holy and separated and consecrated unto him. Yes. That we are praying. Yes. If 12 men gather together in 120 in an upper room and it turned the world upside down, there's more than 120 people here right now. We could turn the world upside down when we pray for God to help our nation again. I think I've made the point. Church, let me just leave it at this. When it looks like there is no hope, and there's a lot of hopeless people in this world today, if the church loses hope, then there is no place for them to turn to. We have to be a people of hope. Yes. Why? Because God is good. Say it with me. God is good, and his mercy endures forever. Amen. His mercy endures forever. It's not because we deserve it. We deserve God's judgment. I've always said, America. if God judged America, he would be completely justified right now to judge America. But I've always believed in my heart that when he took Abraham and he said, well, I do this thing without telling my servant, and he showed him Sodom and Gomorrah, and he said, God, if I can find 50 righteous men, will you spare it? How about 40? How about 30? How about 10? He said, I'll spare it for 10. I will spare it for the righteous' sake. But he couldn't find any righteousness in Sodom and Gomorrah, so he destroyed it. I believe with all my being that the judgment of God is stayed off of America because of the righteous. The Bible tells us that. He tells us the lawlessness is already at work in the land. Only he that restrains will restrain until he's taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, the son of perdition. I know we're staying back the judgment of God. But the day's coming when the trumpet shall sound. Amen. Amen. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, and those that are alive will be caught up. And you don't want to be hanging around here after that, brother, let me tell you, because it's going to get ugly. Amen. Father, I just thank you for this time to just look back at what you have done, Lord. We're not just looking in American history. God, I'm looking at the hand of God working through the affairs of man throughout history. And, Lord, you've shown us time and again, Lord, that when we serve you, God, and when we put you first, Lord, and we keep your statutes and we keep your commandments, then you will bless your people. And just like you told Solomon, if you turn from my statutes and you turn from my commandments and you serve other gods, then I will remove this temple and it will become a, a byword. Lord, may the temple of God, where the Spirit of God dwells in the hearts and lives of people, Lord, keep you sitting upon the throne. Lord, help us to discern and know the will of the Lord. Father, you said the heart is deceitful above all things, and who can know it? So, Lord, help us to not 
fall victim to the deception of the heart, Lord. Lord, there, there are people that are coming against the word of God and they're using great philosophical arguments today, Lord. But God, when we rightly divide the word of truth, we see, God, that, that that's error, it's deception. So, Lord, I pray that you will just pull back the blinders, God, from people's eyes that they can see the truth, Lord. Yeah. Because it's only that truth that sets men free. So reveal your truth, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Worship team, y'all got a song for us? All right, let's worship the Lord and then we're going to dismiss here.
Praise God. Thank you so much, worship team. Hunter's on vacation, but a, a good sign of a good leader is when he's gone, you hardly even notice it. He did a good job training these guys. They did an outstanding job this morning. You know, let me just encourage you this one last thing as you go. I, I told Sister um, Taylor when she was sharing that I, I, I'm not saying it's a vision. I just was reminded of that scene where Jesus is rubbing the stick, you know. Some of you in your, your own personal walk, wherever you're at with your family, your workplace, or some situation that you're dealing with, that's where you are. You, you haven't even got the spark going yet, but you're working at it. You know, some of you may got the spark and you're putting it in the tinder and you're trying to keep it to burning long enough to turn into a flame. What I feel the Lord is saying is be not weary in well-doing for you shall reap in due season if you faint not. Just keep doing what you're doing. Amen. That's the word of the Lord for you. Just keep doing what you're doing. Don't give up. Just keep working. Amen. It's going to work because he said so. He's not a man that he might lie. It's going to work. Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, for our time together. Lord, encourage the body of Christ. Lord, empower us, God. Lord, I pray for the power of the Spirit, Lord, to just to fall upon the church, Lord, every single person, God, and do them with your power, God. And Lord, like I shared last Sunday, most of all, God, most of all, let the love of God be poured out in our heart. Yes. The greatest of all the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. But empower us, God, to be your witness around the world, Lord, and in our particular walk in life, God. Now, Father, I speak a blessing over the body of Christ, over every person that is represented here today, God. May you bless them and bless their home, God. May it be a, an escape, Lord a refuge, Lord, a place where the world and the world is not allowed in, God. God, I pray that you strengthen the family, husbands and their wives, parents and their children, Lord, siblings, one with each other, Lord. God, I pray that Jesus will be the center focus of the family, Lord. Then, God, I pray a special blessing over those who are traveling their journey alone. And, God, they're looking for their mate, God. I pray that you bring them together, Lord, godly people. Lord, just like in that movie, Lord, you brought Greg and Kathy together, Lord, just like you brought Jeannie and I together. Lord, that was ordained by you. And God, you've ordained that person for them. Lord, I pray that they find each other. Lord, they fall just so crazy in love with each other. In Jesus' name. Lord, if they're happy just to be serving you alone, God, you be their mate and their comfort and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless you, church.